Eternal Dirtles is a Hipsters of the Coast podcast sponsored by Paragon City Games and Bearded Dragon Games. You can support us at patreon.com slash eternal dirtles. Y'all know me, Phil B, Eternal Dirtles Legacy. Hated by these net decks, banless, and those Hasbros, Wasi. Nate G, real OG. Arklet and Mavericky. Cradled out the Heron's host, so give no f about Lily V. Zach C, Berserker Dude. Pulls the rug on your attitude. Days then waste trick, flip this Delva. Swing for three with some altitude. Got bruise? We do. Metagame breakdown info too. Listen up, cause here's the show where we stack our decks like spicy news. Hello and welcome to Eternal Dirtles. I'm your host, Zach Clark, and with me this week, Nathan Golia and Phil Bleckman. How's it going, guys? Good afternoon. Evening. Same. Yeah. So we've got a bit of a treat this week. Special guest special guest appearance by a good friend of the cast, Eric Virgo. Welcome. Say hi, Eric. <laughs> welcome in. Hey, thanks for having me on again, guys. Uh, no, always a joy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Um. You know, I'm really glad we got you in because it's, you know, whatever. It's like the end of March here. In a couple of weeks, you're leaving on a, a pretty exciting trip, right? You're going to be gone for, geez, I, I just blanked on the number, but a crazy amount of days, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to hike something called the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, it's one of three um, major established through hikes in the United States. Um, the most well-known being the Appalachian Trail, which is on uh, the East Coast, uh, the Continental Divide Trail, which actually runs up through the middle of the country and, as the name suggests, sort of splits the the country into where the the two different um, tectonic plates come together or major tectonic plates come together. And then there's the Pacific Crest Trail, which goes up um, the West Coast, which goes through California, Oregon and Washington, uh, which is the one that I'm planning on doing. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the length. I Right now, the plan for me is that it's going to take about five and a half months, and that's to hike all the way from uh, Mexico to Canada. Which is pretty amazing, and I'm partially jealous and partially like glad someone else is doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm really looking forward to it, and you know, I've spent the last few months pretty much doing nothing else but but training for it, and I'm very excited and also a little bit nervous. Um, if you look at you know the statistics of people who have attempted it in the past, the the failure rate is actually over 50% for people doing the entire thing. So the numbers are, are fighting against me on this one. But by but, failure rate, you're not talking about death. You're just talking about not making it uh, all the way through the trip, right? Yeah. So okay, good. There are, there are, on average, a couple deaths a year for people who attempt the PCT. Um, you know, people immediately think that, oh, there's like a lot of bears and rattlesnakes and stuff like that. And you're, you're pretty much guaranteed to see rattlesnakes along the way. You might see a bear. Um, you're definitely going to see other wildlife. But the thing that actually really kills people is um, like dehydration from uh, not properly planning your water or like getting injured and not being able to like not being able to contact anyone and then just yeah. like dying of dehydration. And then actually the big one is, is rivers. So quite a few people die from trying to cross rivers that um, like the flow will take them and sweep that's, them away. And then that's, that's it. it. Yeah. So 
Wow. It's and a less morbid topic. It's funny because you said, you know, you'd said uh, we missed you last week because you were out doing a training hike, I'm assuming. Right. That's right. Yeah. You said you were on a hike and then you you know got stuck in traveling home, which is fine. But, um, you know, we know that you're a very meticulous trainer for magic tournaments. And we're just wondering, like, you know, what's it you know, how is it sort of similar or different to sort of prep for something like this? That's a more physical exertion uh, than, you know, like a two day tournament or something like that. So, excuse me. So the the interesting thing is I actually thought there was quite a bit of overlap in in terms of preparing for a magic tournament and preparing for the PCT. Um, There is a lot of analysis that you can do. And a lot of the analysis that you have to do is based off of imperfect information. So like, you know, as someone who really prefers statistics, I would love to be able to, you know, test a million matchups of blue white delver versus sneak and show to see what the exact right sideboarding plan is and see what the percentages are and all that sort of stuff but that's that's not tenable and you know when you're testing for a magic tournament maybe you have the time to play uh, a couple pre-sideboarder games and like 10 post-sideboard games that sort of thing right and that'll that'll get you enough of a feel for you to make a decision about how many sideboard cards you need or what your plan should be all that sort of stuff um planning for the pct is actually really similar because one, you have to physically prepare yourself because you're hiking for 2,600 miles over a lot of the, you know, a lot of relatively treacherous terrain. You're going through the Sierra region, which is um, a lot of mountains, a lot of difficult hikes, a lot of passes, river crossings, all that sort of stuff. But the truth is that I think the more difficult part, and particularly for me, was doing all of the planning associated with um, planning where you're going to get food, where you're going to get water, where you're going to sleep at night, um, what towns you're going to stop in all that sort of stuff um, is a lot of planning. And there's sort of imperfect information for all that because the total number of people that have hiked the PCT in the past is, you know, it's on the order of a couple thousand people. So there isn't like a huge, huge data set to pull from. And then the other thing is, you know, people generally have very different opinions on how to approach some of the problems that you need to solve on the PCT. So it can be really difficult to extract information that, um, is like, you think it's very valuable, valuable or, um, reliable. So it's, it's definitely trying to do the same thing of like construct a plan off of like almost incomplete data sets is, is something that came up for me in magic testing and planning for the PCT. Is the, do you find that the information sharing is a lot like early magic where people were just like hoard their secrets? Um, I think it's actually probably the exact opposite. So in general, the, the community of people that do these sorts of through hikes is incredibly supportive and the absolute default. And, you know, basically every attitude I've seen is that when you're out there, the goal is to not only get yourself through the hike, but it's to get everyone else around you through the hike as well. So there's a lot of information sharing going on. And the, the problem is I think a lot of the information that people share is, is not so good. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the difficult part about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's true because you're like you. I've seen some of your data that you put together, and you put it out there for you know. It's not like secret that you showed me, but it's like stuff you show other people. And uh, it reminds me of when I was planning my cross country move. You know, like oh, I'm gonna stop in this town. It's gonna take me this long. This is how much gas is gonna cost. And then you know, about you know, day and a half in, it all's out the window, and you're and you're really uh, you know, it's hard to stick to your plan, but it's good to have a plan still, just so you sort of know you can ballpark it, but you're never gonna hit those exact metrics. Well, what's and you what's that Mike Tyson quote? Uh, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, that's something that I'm really prepared for. So one of the very few pieces of common information that I found from 
people who have done the PCT previously or done through hikes previously is that you should put a plan in place, but don't go too crazy about putting a detailed plan in place because it's going to change a lot. And um, the reason why I put the, the plan in place was for me just so I can set some loose goals of things like daily mileage and that sort of stuff that I need to be able to complete the, the trail in time um, before winter starts in Washington. Um, so, you know, I need to know, okay, on average, I need to walk like 22 miles a day or something like that over the course of the entire trip to complete it. So like any day that I have where I go through really rough terrain and I only get 17 miles in or 15 miles in, I know I'm going to need to make up for it at some point. So all that stuff is just almost like a tool for me to be able to, um, like evaluate where I'm at on the trail and if I'm ahead, if I'm behind all, you know, all that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, have you thought at all about like your relationship to magic in terms of like, you're talking about walking 22 miles a day. I mean, that's going to be a lot of alone time, a lot of, you know, thinking. And, uh, I mean, I've done some of my best brewing, just taking the dog up the mountain here in Utah. I mean, tongue in cheek, I've done some of my best, but I've had some <laughs> ideas, I've gotten some ideas and I don't have cell phone service at times, so I can't look stuff up. So it's all in my head. I mean, are you expecting to be like, you know, thinking about magic? Or are you trying to get away from it? Like, what's sort of your goal in terms of, of thinking about the game while you're on the road? Or on so, the trip? yeah, so I, um, I'm going to miss magic a lot. You know, it's a big part of my life. And, you know, I've made so many incredible friends through magic and I play the game enough that it's going to be difficult for me to completely rid myself of that. I don't have any dedicated plans in place for um, like trying to brew or trying to do analysis, all that sort of stuff. Um, but magic will be on my mind at some points. And there's a lot of stuff going on in magic that we, that we know about right now during the, during my hike that I'm really interested in. Modern Horizons is coming out. You know, I did that I did like a, a short video series with Matt Sperling on Channel Fireball where we we're basing, testing old legacy cards that they could put into modern. And like, I'm very, very interested in that. And like, uh, when that comes out and when that set gets spoiled, I'm definitely going to be like the first, like when I'm in town, the first thing I'm going to do is like text my mom and tell her I'm okay. And then I got to check like the modern horizon spoilers. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I don't think I'm going to have a ton of opportunity to play. Um, Cyrus, who is one of the best storm pilots in the world, uh, suggested that I bring, a copy of ad nauseum tendrils and then goldfish it every night before bed. <laughs> and he's, he actually said he's in the middle of writing, uh, like a primer for the deck. And he's like, yeah, just bring that and then goldfish every day. And then you'll come back and you'll be a great ant pilot. You'll, like, you'll be as good as Cyrus. Be the best. <laughs> yeah. <I'd> be the... <laughs> so I, I don't think I'm actually going to do that, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, magic will be on my mind at, at some level. I, yeah, I don't, I, it, I, I was just thinking like, you know, it's something that you've done so much of that, you know, your brain, when, it, when your mind wanders, you're going to be thinking about it. Like, I think a lot of people who listen to and certainly Zach and Phil can probably relate to that. I was out um, yesterday in the boonies of Utah digging fossils with my son on a field trip. And, you know, after an hour, like your, your mind gets so clear after like an hour of just pounding at rocks. And like, you know, you start thinking about your you're just thinking about all the other stuff that you enjoy, you know, when you've got that little bit of freedom. Yeah, it is definitely nice to let your mind water like that. Um, one of the things that I used to do a lot of, um, which not so much anymore because I have some injuries preventing me, but I, I used to do a lot of long distance running. And when I used to run, I would run without music. And 
you know, I wore a GPS watch to track my distance and pace and all that sort of stuff. And there were a lot of times where, you know, I'd look down at my watch and I'd be six or seven miles into the run or whatever it is. And then I look down at it again, what feels like a few minutes later. And it's like, I'm, I'm like 12 miles into the run or whatever it, whatever it is. Yeah. Like I've definitely been a, like, like outside of, outside of magic, my, my hobby right now to sort of like keep, keep me physically in shape is rock climbing. And you know, I rock climb indoors and that and climbing also definitely offers that same experience of just totally being able to like detach from yourself. And, you know, I, there's this sort of, I, I don't know, maybe it's like, like, I like this hot word where it's like, uh, the flow state that people call it and like running offers that climbing offers that cause you can climb and then sometimes you finish a climb and it's like, Whoa, what, like what just happened? And you know, it definitely happens when, uh, when hiking for me too. So I'm looking forward to that quite a bit. Great. Uh, we're going to put your, uh, I think a link to your blog. They're going to be keeping in the show notes. So if you guys want to follow along with Eric, um, I know he's, you're going to have some other options to, uh, to help out while you're on this, you know, 2,600 mile quest. So, you know, Look forward to this kind of really I hope we get to see you uh, in the fall or weekend or something. You come back like a mountain man. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if Eternal Weekend is going to be in the cards for me this year just because of the timing of everything. Like when I get back, I'm going to need to find a job. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm assuming everything goes to plan. I'll be finishing like October 1st. Yeah. Actually, is my sort of assumed end date right now. Um, I think Eternal Weekend is like. Was it the weekend before Thanksgiving? Is that it? It's usually in November. I don't know if they've announced it this yeah. week or yet so, this year. I, assuming everything goes well, I'll be back in time. But I, I have a feeling that I'm going to be spending enough time and energy getting my life up to speed that I, I might not be able to make it. And then the other thing is, like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to forget how to play Magic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> nah. That Five would happen. Months. I mean, we I took 11 years off or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There was a Solidarity part of my brain. Be there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was a part of my brain where, like, I quit magic for twelve years, and I just knew that there was this part of my brain that harbored that harbored uh, harbored, harbored all of these all of these cards, all this knowledge, all this stuff. And when I came back to the game, I like slowly trickled back in, and I was like, "Oh, weird! It's just been sitting there, like completely unused part of my brain." Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that happens to me. But one of the things that I know about myself is that, like, I'm not a naturally good magic player. Um, I was like really I was really bad for a long time and I wasn't good when I started playing tournament magic. And back when I was having more success, it was pretty much directly the result of me putting in the time. And I, I have a feeling that five months of not playing is definitely going to definitely set me back quite a bit but there's no way that like i'm ever going to stop playing for sure it's just such a big part of my life that i can't imagine being in a position where i don't play magic right well how do you feel like you're leaving it let's start with legacy how how do you feel about legacy um i'm actually not not super happy with legacy recently um so i guess when i when i think about legacy as a format Everything I think about is in the context of the Deathrite Shaman ban and a, a little bit about Kataxian Pro, but really about Deathrite Shaman. Mm-hmm. And if you remember what I talked about with the banning of Deathrite Shaman is that I thought it was going to really open up the metagame a lot. And I think it did to an extent. I do think we see more diversity. But one of the other reactions that I think 
I think you had that reaction, and I think Cyrus had a similar reaction as well, or, or similar prediction, is that there's going to be a lot more unfair stuff going on, because um, Deathrite Shaman was such a good fair magic card that there were more fair decks represented represented in the metagame. Like it was really the best thing that you could be doing, and it was fair. So there are a lot of people playing fair decks. Yep. Now that Deathrite Shaman's not there, it seems like there's it almost looks it almost feels like they cut the head off the the, the head of the head off the snake for a fair decks um and that allows the the unfair decks to be a little bit more potent and when i've been playing recently which i have been playing a decent amount um not so much in the past few weeks but there are a couple bigger legacy events here in the bay area that i was practicing for there is a lot of chalice of the void there is a lot of gristlebrand decks and there are a lot of uh, copies of tendrils of agony and i felt like the number of non-games that i've had um while playing legacy legacy recently has been much much higher than i guess any i'd probably say at any other point in history and that's with cantrips and forcible on my deck yeah phil phil mentioned a couple weeks ago you know talking about delver secrets is just like you know now delver is just in every fair deck and that's kind of how things are and like just that there's that race to the bottom because of everything being so efficient. I don't know if Phil wants to jump in here with to re- I don't want to put words in your mouth, bud. <laughs> no, I just my argument was, you know, like not that the power level of Delver's obviously nowhere near what Deathrite Shaman's was. My thing was the I didn't think Deathrite Shaman needed to go. I thought like that its biggest defense was that it was just ubiquitous in all the fair decks. And then everybody was like, This card needs to go. It's fair, it's main board. Uh, hate for fair decks against like the unfair decks, which I think is actually fine. Uh, but then the fact that Delver is now just like slotted into the ubiquity of all the fair decks, that but it's not getting the same type of like response that Deathrite got, just because it's like it gives you, I don't know, it's like less versatile, but it still just can close the game a lot faster. Um, so my issue with Delver was that like nobody was looking at it the same way that they were looking at Deathrite Shaman, even though it's a, it's offending the format in the same way. Yeah, I, I think Delver of Secrets definitely is a very commonly played card, but it's not. I, I don't think the I don't think the percentage of decks running Death or Delver of Secrets right now is as high as the percentage of decks running Death Raid Shaman. So that, um, that's where the question came in. So right now, Delver, like if you put them all together, it like hovers around what twenty percent ish. What was the I'm percentage? A, like twenty. Twenty percent. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. actually I'm trying to pull it up on um, MTG Top Eight right now to see how many. Um, what percentage of decks have Delver of Secrets? Yeah. In? So as you're doing that, I mean, I remember when when Deathrite needed to go, it was what just under forty, or was under it under forty? Yeah, just it was around under... forty, right? Yep. Yeah. So then the question really becomes like, was forty the the question becomes what is the ubiquity that we then care about becoming too ubiquitous? Right. Is forty percent the marker, or was we should have been thinking about when Deathrite Shaman hit twenty five percent? Was that the marker where we should have cared? But then it like lasted long enough to hit forty. You know, where's where, what is the percentage where we go? This card being this ubiquitous, so it's like if Delver's twenty percent, does that mean that is is it okay that if you go into a, a a fifteen round tournament, you're guaranteed statistically to play against Delver at least three times? Is that right. okay? Yeah, I, I, I think the the answer to that is probably no. But you know, three out of you know twenty percent of a metagame isn't. Um, isn't really horrendous. So just looking at MTG top eight right now, the number is 
surprisingly low. It's actually 13.9% of decks are playing Delver of Secrets. That's lower than I would have guessed. Um, yeah, I think that's actually gone down since Phil made his point originally, which is one of the one of the things that sucks about making a point ever is that sometimes things ebb and flow, and you've gotten to this point where you're like looking at a top eight, and it's got like, you know, four four versions of Delver decks, and then four unfair decks, and you're like, well, that's it, it's unfair or Delver, you know. Do we know is that thirteen percent? Is that for paper, tabletop, or both? So this is for I have both, and that's a point that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, I, I think in the, paper it's fourteen point five. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say. I, I was gonna say. I think Delver is actually a little bit underrepresented by, um, or underrepresented on Magic Online, just because people are grinding on Magic Online and they like playing really fast combo decks like Storm or Black Red Reanimator. Those, those are, I think, a little bit more overrepresented. But they're also know, more forgiving online when you can talk about them to yourself when you're <laughs> when you're playing them. And I, I, I truly mean that. Like uh, that's know. fair. Yeah. Actually, you know, just just looking at the list of the the most played creatures in uh, in Legacy right now, uh, the the top one is actually Snapcaster Mage, and that's showing up in just under twenty two percent of decks. And then True Name Nemesis is in second at seventeen point eight. Stoneforge Mystic, seventeen percent of decks, or excuse me, sixteen percent of decks. And then Delver of Secrets at at the fourteen that we talked about, and that's in order. So three three blue creatures and and one creature that might as well be blue right except for death and taxes well so we talked a little about stoneforge mystic last week and why it sort of we sort of feel like it's on the rise and it's it's sort of like i think i think when you're talking about non-games in the format it's interesting because there's there's like different permutations of the non-game there's the one where it's like oh it's you know turn one and i died or turn two you know or whatever and then there's like the all right, we ground it out, and then they drew a true name nemesis, and I had three turns to find an answer, and I didn't, you know? So, like, and like yeah. all of my creatures were blanks, and all of my removal, except for like the one council's judgment or whatever I had, was blank, and that was the end of the game, you know? Yeah. So, when I experience games that are like that, where let's say like you grind out, you know, you grind out with your opponent, you both have no cards in hand, and they top deck true name nemesis, that's, that's probably like the, the extreme end of that permutation of non-game i think what you'll find is that if you go back and you look at your your the play patterns during the game or the lines that you took or the decisions that you made there's there's opportunities that you had along the way to make different decisions that may have put you in a different position on that critical turn when they did draw true name nemesis if i could plus one this like a thousand times i would yeah (laughs) and i i would much much rather have games like that where people are making decisions and their ramifications to their decisions rather than like reveal chancellor of the annex crystal brand goes in play. Like there are decisions being made there, whether or not you should keep your opening <laughs> hand is that's a, that is a very yeah, important sure. decision in, in legacy, but <clears throat> that's not really why I show up to play magic. It, it is part of it, of course, but I do really enjoy the the longer games where there's uh, more decisions. I, I do tend to play decks where there's shorter games with fewer decisions, but but that's just me because I, I feel like I, I have more success there. Yeah. It's funny because, like, you know, we talk about a lot of these cards a lot. Grizzlebrand, you know, especially. And, like, only 8% of decks. Chalice is actually, I'm looking at the same entity top 8 data. Chalice of the Void is the exactly equivalent to Delver, 14.5%, which I find really interesting. And I do think it's played in too many decks. Well, it's one of those <laughs> things where it's like, you know, you're, it's, it's part of it is like your sample size and like you, you experience a certain amount of these games in a row. Um, 
Yeah, I just I, what, what, the thing that I think you know, and I've seen a couple of people make this the same point recently, you know, about like just a lot of linear things going on, a lot of like jam this, does it win? Okay, you know, um, it's just like you know, it's it's the race the like playing most efficient everything, and you know that just kind of leads to that situation where you can be extremely punished with something like Chalice, which doesn't feel good. Or the other person's efficient thing worked out because they got their Grizzle brand out, you know, or like they won the die roll and had Delver days waste you or something, you know. Yeah, and I I just want to be perfectly clear here. Like I I don't think decks like Black Red Reanimator or Chalice of the Void based strategies are totally mindless. Um, there have actually been a couple opportunities where I watched um, uh, Eric Eric Landon, who's EW EW Landon on Moto. Mm-hmm. Um, he was you know he st- he started streaming recently. And I was watching him play Black Red Reanimator, and he took a couple of lines. Not only were the lines that I did not see, but they were lines that e- even if I had saw them, I don't think I would have taken them. And it was like, a, you know, like game three against his uh, his opponent was on, I don't know, some some blue deck. It doesn't really matter. But he just spent the first the first couple turns just discarding multiple threats. Uh, like he didn't play any cards. Like he just drew up to eight, discarded a Gristle Brand, drew drew up to eight again, discarded. I think it was like an Alish Norn or something like that. I, I don't I don't remember the exact cards, but I think there's there definitely is play to those decks. But you know, just the number of non games that I experience is something that it's it's a little unfortunate because you know you go to play in paper, you got to drive a while, you you're paying a relatively big entry fee, you sit down for <laughs> round one, and you got a great hand on your opponent plus a Chalice of the Void in play. Like that's not a fun experience, and I understand that. You know, the fun of the players may not be like the ultimate goal, but it is a game, and I think you can. It should be a goal quality, if it's not the ultimate of goal. Game should should matter. Yes, I think. Yeah, I I don't. Yeah, and I think that like you know we talked about this a little lot, but you know, Chalice the Void is is powered up by the fact that there's so many people concentrated on one drops because. If they do, if you don't have one mana interaction, you can't beat this other thing that does horrifying, horrendous things to you, you know. So yeah, or, um, or even or even zero mana interaction. Like I mean, yeah. I, I I haven't looked this up, but I'm assuming surgical extraction is the most played sideboard card, right? I, I would almost guarantee it. Um, it I don't know how. In double click here. Let's see. Oh, let's look at sideboard. Oh, we can do that on here, can't we? Oh, look at that. Yeah, you can. 61.3% of decks play Surgical Extraction in the sideboard. It should even be higher, honestly. Wow. And then Fluster Storm is at number two. Jeez. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's to be expected. You know, the only thing that's better than one is free, you know? <laughs> and uh, I, I, the reason I don't like cards like Surgical Extraction um, is that their, their justification for being in the format or existing as a card period is that, um, you know, if we don't have it, then you just, you know, you eat grizzle brand over and over and over. It's like, well, you know, but how, like, even if you, if you don't have surgical extraction in the game, you just lose the, the grizzle brand anyway, you know, it's not a chroma angel of wrath that you can like untap and draw a card, you know, yeah. like, it's just, you know, that's, that's the thing. I, I, I kind of feel like there's that race to the bottom effect because of that. And uh, I, you know, you know, I, I could see a pairing being in order, but um, I, I've, I've been surprised that we had you on right after Death Ray was banned, which I think it was just about a year ago, maybe a little bit less. Yeah, and, sounds about uh, right. And I think a lot of the predictions we made were came 
get more chillin' because people are gonna play cheaper cards. They're gonna, you know, you're gonna get more grizzle brand because people aren't gonna have to play around death rate shaman. Like all that stuff happened. You're gonna get more blood moon, right? Because there's not a way to produce mana. So yeah, I I think one of the things that I think is fascinating is that if you look at Reanimator before Death Rite Shaman got printed, it was the it was the blue black version of the deck, right? So it was playing like you know it was playing Ponder Brainstorm, Careful Study as cantrips, and then it was playing like all the the black Reanimator cards that you would expect. Then Death Rite Shaman got printed, and because Death Rite Shaman forced Reanimator into a space where it needed to be able to put threats into play turn one to beat a death rate shaman it moved to the black red version with like free spells like unmask and then um the and then faithful suiting right because well chancellor is a free spell that is Chance, important ch- right chancellor is an, an important free spell as well right so after death rate shaman got printed it moved to black red and then death rate shaman got banned and the de facto best build of reanimator is still black red like that is very very interesting to me and i think it's sort of plays into your point that the format is still very much about being incredibly incredibly efficient and i think that's the way legacy has always been though like historically uh legacy and the other eternal formats there's always been pressure to be the first person to double spell or triple spell or something like that and the way that you do that is you play the least expensive things yeah. so it's um you know it's not surprising <laughs> that we've seen things move in that direction Right. I think that there's been a um, sort of uh, like, you know, legacy players will go as far as they can, but you didn't always have this far to go. If that makes sense, you know, um, you couldn't like you couldn't play like a five five for one. You couldn't tap two lands and, and like get a creature and draw a card and then like moat them, you know, basically. Yeah. Uh, you know, like that's that's a, that's a lot of efficiency. And like, you know, it's sort of like give a mouse a cookie, you know. But, well, I know we've got a hard stop at about 20 minutes, and uh, I think that, you know, I, I'm still having fun playing Legacy most times, but there, I, I definitely do hear this, and I agree with it. Unfortunately, I've become more degenerate, and now, like, I'm I'm testing with lines and high decks and stuff, you know? Like, I'm testing with land grant that just play more free spells, so I've given up the good fight, at least for the time being. <laughs> yeah, I... Oh, oh, go, go ahead. I was gonna say I think if I think if I were gonna be going to um, Magic Fest Niagara Falls, I would be testing on Fair Decks, um, possibly Sneak and Show, but I'm not sure what what I would play. I, I, it just seems like it's the place to be right now, and yeah. that's that's a big change for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm going the opposite direction and moving away from an unfair deck back to a fair deck. I'm I'm back on Rug. Really? Yes. Yeah. That's a tough position to be in, I think. Yeah, I mean, my unfair deck was Infect, so it was just like, I'm losing to the the fair decks that are just mono removal at this point, and I'm losing to the unfair decks that are going off faster than me. Mm. Uh, and so it just makes, like, you know, they're all running uh, stuff like Thoughtseize and stuff, which works out well against me because they get to look at my plan, and they can kind of tear me apart. So well, That's actually yeah. fascinating because Infect used to be a combo killer. Right? Yeah, it was a that, combo deck that was just faster than all the other combo decks. Yeah, I, I've been having a lot of trouble against combo decks lately because they have, you know, every. It, it, I think it's it sort of speaks to the same situation as you were talking about with Black Red Reanimator. Every combo deck has had to, for so long, deal with interaction at this point. Like just one Flusterstorm or you know, uh, days isn't good enough anymore. So 
uh, once they f figure out what your plan is, if you don't have uh, two ways to interact or, like, you know, th uh, you can't uh, beat them before they beat you, th it's over. So it's, it's harder, I feel like, with Infect because it's a deck doing two things at the same time. It's protecting mm. itself uh in a non inter like in, in a non disruptive way to the opponent and uh and I'll explain that in a second and it's uh trying to get creatures to attack the opponent so what i mean by non interactive way is that i'm not doing anything uh progressive uh in my game against my opponent like if i were playing black i could play thought seize look at my opponent's hand take one of the problem cards away i'm playing days and the longer the game goes, if I'm not winning immediately, the more useless days becomes. Or even, or even like Flusterstorm or uh, uh, what's it called a uh, uh, spell, spell pierce. pierce. Spell Pierce, yeah. yeah. So uh, the, what happens is I put a guy down. You know, I get in a couple times with it. My opponent may or may not deal with it, or goes off before before it's my time to uh, win. And then I'm stuck in this in this sort of middle zone of like not a good enough combo deck to win fast, not a good enough control deck to uh, stop the combo deck from winning. Well, yeah, and I think Zach specifically the advent of the dark depths combo deck. Yeah, that doesn't help. Uh, you know, <laughs> it just ratcheted up the amount of thought seizes, and I mean they played sometimes Duras and Inquisition as well, um, and just a very compact combo where everything that isn't a thought teaser or duress is a combo piece or a way to fetch the combo piece. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and like I said, that progresses your game. A thought seize progresses your game in ways that days doesn't, yeah. uh, you know, you can, you can look at your opponent's hand, see what's going on, get rid of the problem card. And then, you know, for the rest of the game, sort of what you're dealing with. Uh, it's generally since the game's normally three or four turns from, from that point. Um, whereas like with days, I have to wait for my opponent to react to what's going on with me. And I don't get any information from that. Like, at least I don't get, like, to look at their hand. So I, I just feel like it's in a spot right now where, you know, without uh, Gitaxian Probe to sort of help me look at my opponent's hand, see what's going on, move on from there, the deck just isn't fast enough to, to beat uh, the unfair decks. It's not reactive enough in that in that sense. And it's just not uh, fast enough to beat the, the combo decks that are just better versions of what I'm trying to do. Interesting. Well, can you just play Thoughtseize? I like, thought I know about it's... that. All I, thought of... I was like, oh, <laughs> can I can I just like buy like one uh you know uh what's it called uh one bayou and just see how that works? And I was like, you know, this isn't this isn't gonna work because you do you do like feel like you do need the counter magic in some cases. It, it's so, it's such a rough trade because there's just some things that something's good against and some things that it aren't. It's it, yeah. it, it's I'm... a it's a shit situation because like. Your opponent, uh, you know, they can sword your 2020, but there's so much else they can't they can't do to a 2020, you know. Whereas like if you have a one one on the board and you attack with it, and your opponent is like, okay, I'll take the one, kill it afterwards, you know. There are play lines that like speak so easily once you know them to be infect uh, that like just don't work against a uh, a merit lage. Yeah, and I, honestly, the the thoughtsies comment was more of a joke. Like, it, you know. Just you know. Oh, I've thought about it though. Point. I'm not even lying. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> uh, I, 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 like I, it's something I consider too. But like, Force of Will and Days are are tempo positive cards, and Thoughtseize yeah. is a tempo negative card. And I don't think you want to put those tempo negative cards in your. In yeah, your exactly. It's like my turn. The, my turn the big play thing. wants to be wants to be proactive for sure. Yeah. So well, I. I, think about, yeah. Yeah. I, had, I had an idea about in fact, where I think we should move on because I know we have a quick stop, but I do. Want, let's talk about. I want to talk about vintage, unless Phil has a last thing to mention about legacy. 
Nah, bro, let's vintage it. All right. How you feeling about vintage? Let me tell you something, brother. You're here listening to this Eternal Dirtles podcast, but what you need to do is go over to Eternal Dirtles Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Eternal Dirtles, and show your support, brother. Yeah. On the other hand, we're just having some of the same discussions uh, around, like, you know, the quality of gameplay. Um, you yeah. know. So... Save paradoxical outcome. I actually think vintage is great. <laughs> I, that's that's my personal opinion of it. Um, for you know something over the past, I'd say I'm, I'm going to say roughly a year and a half. Um, something very interesting has happened in vintage, and that is there have effectively been no new cards printed that have had an impact on the vintage format. There's been multiple sets that have come out. Um, then people trust tried some stuff out. Nothing really big changed. And in that period of time, the Paradoxical Outcome deck has gone from a deck that's been relatively poorly built and not properly tuned to a metagame to this incredible refined machine that is built to, one, attack the metagame in whatever configuration it's currently in and beat up on what its biggest predator used to be, which was the Shops deck. Mm-hmm. So... Like in 2017, when I was building my shop stack for for Vintage Champs, I basically didn't even think about Paradoxical Outcome. I was just like, yeah, you put a sphere in play, and then you attack with some some dudes, and the game's over. Like That's just what happened every time I played against it. And honestly, they weren't prepared for that. Now they play multiple main deck Hercules Recall, as well as multiple in the sideboard. Plus, they have basic lands in the sideboard, which is a big, it's just a big deal. So that matchup has gone from very much in shop's favor to very much in favor of the paradoxical outcome deck. And if you want to reduce the format to um, rock, paper, scissors, which would be PO, Xerox, and shops, the fact that it used to be like uh, an actual rock, paper, scissors format, which is okay, it's not great, but now it's turned into PO is just the best deck. And there are definitely some games quality of gameplay concerns yeah when that deck is winning for sure I, and I, that's the deck I, that i play and yeah it's it, the deck it's, you should play if you want yeah to yeah I, I mean i think it'd be crazy to not play it right um but to to speak to that deck's power i went to a, a meetup uh of like all the local guys in in uh new york that play that play magic and these are like the heavy hitting like uh legacy and vintage players we're talking like roland chang you know uh those guys and i I four-owed. Paradoxical outcome. I was like, I guess I just won. I felt bad. I was like, this is the this is by no stretch of the imagination the best deck that I've ever laid hands on as far as Magic is concerned. I mean, it's a vintage. It's obviously the most powerful version of a thing, but it's just like it feels so ghastly, insane to play that deck. Like where you're just like, oh, oh, do you have a, a piece of interaction with me? I'll bounce that, and then I'll just do my thing. Yeah, so it, it's really interesting because I've never actually personally piloted the PO deck. Um, I a couple weeks ago when Cyrus top eight of the challenge with PO, um, I was skyping with him, just hanging out and like watching him play and, and whatnot. And um, the deck just felt completely silly. Like his opponent was like, "Recall, snap, recall." He's like, "I just don't care." 
and then he just yeah. like untapped and killed him the next time. Right? That's only six cards. Like, yeah, you're, you're, exactly. You're it's probably draw cards. thirty the next turn. So you know, it, it was it was pretty nuts. Um, but the truth about the, the truth is, is that if you want to beat PO, you can. Um, like if you want to play either Rug Xerox or or Jeskai Xerox and you want to beat PO, you can absolutely do that with the way that you configure the sort of flex slots in your deck. You know, Pyroblast is obviously an incredibly potent card. And um, just, you know, cards like Flusterstorm um, and uh, Mindbreak Trap are incredibly effective tools against the deck. So, you know, if you show up to a tournament wanting to beat PO, you can. Um, and I think there's actually quite a few decks out there that have well over 50% um, matchup win percentage against PO, one of them being Jeskai when it's configured properly, and then the other one being Eldrazi. Um, Eldrazi is just a nightmare matchup for for PO. So I actually think that's something that's a little bit healthy in the sense that, you know, you can play a budget deck and just show up and just you just completely you roll over PO when you play against it. Um, Thought Not Seer with uh, the, the other disruptive cards in the deck is just, it's really, really tough for PO to beat. Yeah, I think the decks that can play Null Rod or Stony Silence, uh, obviously the two you just spoke of, um, generally tend to do pretty well against that deck because you you can play multiples of them. And then it becomes a little bit harder, especially uh, Stony Silence because it's not an artifact, so Hercules Recall doesn't do anything. Right. I mean, they do technically have that covered by Repeal. Repeal, which of is course. like This is one of the strengths of the deck in the sense that it gets to play cards that are just like they're good against almost everything like repeal force of will that's a lot of coverage for for hate cards right Repeal's even good when you don't have a target you can just right. use and it to cycle like it's a right. free and cycle exactly and that's why the card is that's why the card is is really playable in that deck is because it, it, those it, it's, it's a really bad cataxian probe at its floor right yeah um no you, you do have to have a target to cast it you can't cast on lands well, the deck basically always has a mox oh, yeah, yeah. in play. I just, I so just making sure we. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the deck I've been playing, the Bant Survival deck, has the latest build of that has three Stony Silence main, which I, I, you know, it does just ranch PO. Like I got a Stony Silence into play, and they conceded, and then uh, in the next turn or the next game, I had like Lotus uh, Energy Flux, and they conceded again. <laughs> So I didn't like tap a bizarre to win, <laughs> uh, but like you know, yeah, you have to be able to play Stony Silence. The four Lavinias are pretty good as well. Um, actually, and the, the thing is that I think the survival deck I, I struggle a lot against the Xerox builds just because they can gum up the ground in a more, in a pretty proactive way with Young Pyromancer and also yeah. Dak Fade and stealing your Hollow Ones is really painful. Yeah, Dak Fade is so. definitely a good card in Vintage. So but I've been on these weird like. You know, I, how do I beat the Xerox deck? And I think I'm bringing Plague Spitter as like a thing I can survival for. And yeah, if you're looking for like a minus one, minus one effect, you have a, a couple different options. I think if you're willing to go into black, there was a creature that was printed with exploit, which is like the mechanic when it comes into play, you can sacrifice a creature and then you get the whatever the bonus was. And one of the bonuses is that it's like minus one, minus one. Minister to... of Pain. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. I just I just I just think it'll be funny to play a plague spitter in 75 proxy vintage. Yeah, do it. Which I'm on Saturday. But like I don't even know if I'm gonna be in the deck. I, I do I do find the deck to be just hilarious. Like sometimes like um I, I don't I don't know how you ever lose and sometimes I don't know how you ever win. <laughs> Yeah, so um, 
I was one of Cyrus's main testing partners for uh, for the VSL when we were just, you know, when he was trying to figure out what he was going to play and all that sort of stuff and what his 70, uh, more realistically, trying to figure out what his 75 for PO and, and DPS were. He, yeah. we, he never really considered heavily playing anything else. Um, but, you know, I played, that, I played that survival deck a couple times and, man, the good hands out of that deck are pretty absurd. You know, just like turn one bizarre pitch, Vengevine, Basking Rootwalla, play a couple hollow root ones, like bring a Vengevine back. Like that happened to me multiple times. And it was like, what, why, why would I ever play anything else? And then like, I would have those hands where like, I didn't have bizarre in my opener. And yeah. yeah. You basically have to, to, to mulligan any hand that doesn't have a bizarre or a survival because otherwise your deck doesn't really do anything except like play like a noble hierarch and then turn to like, you know, play a Manglehorn or something. <laughs> I mean, so. Manglehorn is an effective tool, you know, particularly against PO. Yeah. But I, um, one of the things that I'm going to pay attention to on uh, when I'm out hiking the PCT is what's going to happen with the London Mulligan rule. I, I, have you guys discussed that yet? We we have a little bit, uh, not not too in depth, but the as soon as it got uh, discussed, we went over some stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go go through and make a relatively bold prediction on the record hmm. and that's going to be that if the london mulligan rule is brought to vintage it bizarre is either going to get restricted it's a, one of one of three things bizarre is going to get restricted they're going to completely nerf the dredge deck somehow by restricting other cards or um vintage just becomes completely unplayable yeah i and, mean i think that i i i still have uh, my my dad is a is a math genius, and I still have him uh, trying to figure out the exact like number with uh, with the math involved for uh, serum powder as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's like, it's so close to a hundred percent that you're going to get like he's like you might go through your entire entire deck, but like it's so close to a hundred percent that you're going to be able to start the game with a bizarre Baghdad that it's it's not even worth doing the math for. Yeah, as as, a, as an engineer, I just treat it as a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It was like ninety-eight. Good joke. Um, and ninety-eight point five or something was what I saw. You know, and it's funny because like you know the best way to actually beat the the, the good when dread starts on bizarre is just start on bizarre yourself and like put a bunch of venge vines into play because like <laughs> get seriously like they they don't get the dredge till the next turn so you know you can probably you might just be able to squeak in enough you like. Um, yeah, I mean dredge is. For the most part, Dredge is really like a turn three deck. So if you can be a turn two, you know, you know, they always talk about modern being a turn four format, right? Like that's the pressure point where you you, yep. you either need to be able to win the game or significantly disrupt your opponent from winning the game. Like vintage feels like it's like a turn two point five format, honestly. Sometimes it's really just turn one. But... I I do want to respond to to your uh, vintage will become unplayable. I still still very much believe that. You don't lose to Dredge because they got Bizarre, because they already do that. You lose to Dredge because you don't have any way to interact with them in games two and three. And so I don't think it'll ruin the format, but I do think that, yes, they're going to have to do something about it if, if, if that happens. And and one of the things that I'd like to see is just, look, if you want to put the London Mulligan rule into Standard and you want to put it into Modern and you want to put it into Legacy, that's fine. Just don't put it in Vintage. Like... I don't see why we can't have multiple mulligan rules for different formats. Like vintage is already the only format with a restricted list. Like, yeah. Yeah. Why can't, why now, can't standard you just... once had a restricted list as a heads up? 
Okay. Well, know, let's talk okay. about not ancient history, right? <laughs> so I, I mean, I don't think you can really make the argument that it's difficult to follow or it's going to confuse players because no, I don't think so. Either. Th th there's no new players that are playing vintage. It just doesn't happen. Right. So let vintage go be its own thing. Um, I, another, another prediction is that at some point, Stephen Menendian will write a letter to Watsi. It will be an open letter like he has done in the past. Is this and your other bold prediction? This is my other bold, this is my other bold prediction. I'll, let me check in in six months and see what happens. So how, Can we get an over-under on the number of pages of this letter? Uh, I think we uh, need... Uh, so one, six is the answer for that. 1.5. <laughs> well, if Stephen doesn't, do uh, doesn't do road signs, huh? I think, I think oh, you know what he should do? He should get one of those digital signboards and put his letter on that. <laughs> Roll it in front of the headquarters. What's it? Didn't, didn't, didn't someone at some point, like... Get one of those road signs and like show up in the Watsi parking lot. Yeah, and yeah, that's how that's, that's, right. that's, 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 that's right got banned. That was yeah. the joke. That's the that was how Top got banned. Oh, Top, it was Top. Yeah. Still, um, still heinous as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, or they could just like another. inflate one of those rats that we do use in New York for uh, when when the unions are are being bypassed. Only people from New York know what I'm talking about right now. The belly of an inflatable rat. I think vintage is going to be pretty difficult to play um if if they bring the london mulligan rule to it well, maybe we'll test it on saturday like uh we're playing some proxy vintage in texas i'm looking i'm looking forward to it and maybe i'll get a couple people to just jam some games and see what happens but i've got the bizarre deck so i'm happy to see it yeah i i think the um the importance of bizarre to to survival is not the same as the importance of bizarre to, to dredge though uh, who knows maybe maybe it just changes the metagame in the sense that there's a lot more wasteland decks running around and um maybe i i can't even imagine what it would look like i don't know maybe so actually here's a here's another semi prediction too this is a tier two prediction okay so um if the london mulligan rule gets implemented in vintage two card monty becomes a tier 1.5 deck Okay, our so, our friend Brian Anderson from Paragon will be thrilled. He loves two card Monty. <laughs> well, I'm I'm serious. So so hear me out, right? So so Dre two card Dredge Monty is what? Oh yeah, okay. So for the people for the that, viewers are, that don't are know, obviously knowing about this, two card <laughs> Monty is this totally crazy deck in Vintage, and it plays um, Leyline of the Void plus Helm of Obedience. Yep. It plays Mishra's Workshop to help power the Helm out. It also plays um, Dark Depths Vampire Hex Mage. Uh, Urborg, so all of your lands can produce black for the Vampire Hex Mage, as well as like Thespian Stage, and then it also plays um, a kind of a wonky card, Mirage Mirror. It's a card that can copy any permanent on the battlefield. It, it also combos with um, uh, Dark Depths to make a 2020 because it copies the Dark Depths. It doesn't have the counters on it. It you know that all the triggers happen and you get the 2020. So this is a combo deck that is already main decking for Leyline of the Void. And Dredge is pro like Dredge might actually just be the best deck in the format if the London Mulligan rule is there. It's possible. It's going to get a lot better, but it's going to be it's definitely going to be good. So two card money is going to be a combo deck that plays four main deck ley lines, and that style of deck is going to see a huge boon from the London Mulligan rule as well, because you have the the ability to select cards in your in your hands when you mulligan, right? So I think that deck is probably also going to get a big buff. I think any deck where 
Well, two card money. Two card money is just like the deck for like I don't want this right now. I'm gonna put it on the bottom of my deck where it's safe. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly. if they're playing Mirage Mirror, are they playing uh Time Bolt as well? Uh yeah, I think I it feel plays like you can't not play Brian's, Time Bolt, right? I think it might play Time Vault, but I'm not sure. It does. Well Brian's build plays um the the Helm Leyline combo is the important one, and then he has Time Vault combo and he also has uh Painter Servant combo instead of Dark Depths. But I'll, he'll probably listen to this and say, oh, we should try Dark Depths, because he already has Urborg to just <laughs> Yeah, make. why not? Well, you need Urborg, so sometimes you need to hard cast that ley line off your workshop, so you need Urborgs anyway. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that the two-card money build actually might have different builds, but they, I have seen the Painter's, the painters Grindstone before. But just so we're clear, this deck is so far off the map that it's not even listed on MTG Top 8. So, you know, it's Is it like, really? That's, yeah. that's, that's surprising. It's right. so far I mean, off the map that when I played uh, without power, uh, what was it, like 2015, when you could you they gave you the uh, option to play without power, I played it in the first round of of like the losers bracket. Oh no way! <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, like as uh, of being off the map, someone without power, uh, that was the first time I ever saw the deck. You know, like I was just like, oh okay, and then someone's like, uh, Leyline of the Void, and I was like, well, you don't have to worry about that for me. I'm playing Rug Delver and Legacy basically. <laughs> Yeah, so I, 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 in general, I think Vintage is in a, a pretty good spot. You can show up wanting to beat the decks, the best deck if you want to, um, but it, there definitely is a best deck right now. And I, I was not saying that for a long time because I thought the format was a little bit more balanced. But now that the, the Paradoxical Outcome deck has been refined, um, I, I really do think it is the best deck at this point. And if you want to maximize your chances at winning, you should be playing it. Yeah. I also like that that's like, you know, we we often don't talk about this one part of Magic where, like, y- when a deck is, like, just good and it goes from being good to being amazing, that's always a cool, like, thing to watch. But we're always on the other end of it where we're like, oh, this needs to get banned. But, like, as somebody just, like, watching it as, like, uh, you know, like, as a scientist, you know, it's always cool to me to see that, like, whoa, that deck got really good. Someone figured something out, you know? I agree. I like if you go back and you look at the PO decks from a long time ago, they were playing like Seat of the Synod and Thoughtcast. They were playing just, I just like this total range of cards that was totally different. And, Two know, PO. Uh, <laughs> I I think they they got onto four PO pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but there, for a long time, there were people that were like, all right, I'll play I'll play one Mox Opal, one. Like, you know, it's like I've got real Moxes. I don't need Moxopal. Right. And, you know, now it's like, no, you just you play four. Some lists play three. I think I think you should probably be playing four. But let's look at um, Cyrus CG 2019 316 five and one three Moxopal. Yeah. I in in general, I think four is where you want to be. But it's. You know, there, there's also different builds of the PO deck. So yeah. like, there are these combo heavy versions that are playing Tendrils of Agony. There are. Uh, almost. I, I don't want to say more controlling versions, but they're playing like. Uh, sometimes they're playing Tinker for Vault Key, and then mm-hmm. their only way to win the game is one Monastery Mentor and like maybe a Snapcaster Mage. So sometimes when you play against that version of the deck, you get into these like really really interesting game states where it's like, all right, I drew a, a removal spell for their Monastery Mentor, and I have a blocker for their one Monk Token. I'm pretty sure they don't have any other win conditions, like. What it what happens when they put Vault Key together, um, and it's you know stuff stuff like that does come up. It's it's a little bit more rare, but it does happen. Break out your sadistic sacraments. Just gotta hit the Snapcaster Mage, the Mentor, <laughs> and the Time Vault, 
and you're all set. Yeah, um, hope they're not in their hand, right? I, I was playing against PO the other day, and they kind of, like, stopped with, like, a bunch of cards. And I was like, ooh, maybe I'm going to win because, like, they can't attack, and I have a wonder in the graveyard and all these bench vines. And then they, like, used all their mana and cast a Mind's Desire for the rest of their deck. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was, like, 27 storm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, well, I'm the, probably going to die. That's the other thing. Some people don't put Mind's Desire in their PO deck. I think they're insane. <laughs> that card is so <laughs> that card is so absurd. It's so I, great. To, to the look on your opponent's face when you cast Mind's Desire for like twenty, and they're just like, just flip the fucking cards over, just flip them over. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> shuffling twenty times. <laughs> guys, um, I have to go. Um, if you guys want to wrap up quickly, literally, I think uh, I think one. we're good here. Yeah, I think we can wrap up. We can we can stop at Mind's Desire. Take my shower. Um, we have a new patron, Aaron Thayer. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, so we'll have the link to your blog below. Uh, I want to quickly thank all of our patron supporters. Uh, and, uh, and I think that that's it for this week, guys. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for coming on. And yeah, best thank, of luck. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, good luck, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, and I appreciate the good lucks because uh, I'm definitely going to need it. Where does he get those wonderful toys?